0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicas Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 15th, 2019, and this is show number 749. Well, I have lots of amazing adventures to tell you about this week. I hope you stay to the end because there's some big stuff at the end. Doug Ingram joins us this week to talk about what he calls nightscape photography on Chit Chat Across the Pond. Nightscape photography is a combination of astral photography, photographing the stars, and photography of the surrounding landscape. His photographs of the Milky Way with the landscape are absolutely breathtaking. I follow him on Instagram, and that's kind of how we reconnected. Um, but in this uh, podcast episode, Doug explains the gear that he uses, the settings on his camera, and the surprisingly little that he does to edit his photos after the shoot. He also talks about how far he's willing to drive in a single night to capture these amazing shots. You can find this episode in the Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed in your podcatcher of choice, or you can listen right at podfeed.com, I'll say that again, podfeed.com, episode number 608. Before you listen to this episode, though, of Chit Chat Across the Pond, I want to explain something about the recording. I was in San Diego at Lindsay's house using my fancy new setup for remote recording. I had my Zoom H4n Pro with my fancy new SM58 microphone that I told you about recently. I bought this gear so I could have really good audio while on the road. But what you're going to hear from me in this recording isn't good at all. Let's walk through what I did right, and at the end I'll tell you what I missed. You see, the Zoom can be used as a mobile recorder using an SD card to store the recording, but this only works if the other person is actually in the room with you. So it's great for like going to CES and doing a mobile recording. But for recording someone in a different location, I use the Zoom as a USB interface for the SM58 microphone that has an XLR connector. I plug the SM58 into the Zoom on XLR connector one of two. I then plugged the Zoom into my Mac using a mini-USB to USB-A cable and then a USB-A to USB-C adapter into my Mac. Now, as soon as you plug the Zoom into a powered USB port like the one on my Mac, the Zoom powers up. The Zoom then shows on screen a cryptic little menu that you need to scroll through to tell it to connect as a USB interface. I remembered to do that properly as well. Once I performed that connect dance, I was able to see the Zoom as a microphone in multiple places on my Mac. I could see it in Sound Preferences, I could see it in Loopback where I wrote my audio, and in Audio Hijack where I actually do the recording, I was able to choose the Zoom as an input. That let me know that the Zoom was connected properly. I also correctly set the Zoom as the audio input device in Audio Hijack, so I did actually choose it. Now, another step I have to remember is to open Audio MIDI Setup and tell it to set the zoom to record at 44.1 kHz instead of the 48 kHz to which it defaults for some annoying reason. Now, if I'd forgotten that step, you would have heard me sound like a high-pitched chipmunk. I did not forget this step, and I set it correctly as well. Now, I'm a, I'm a a very firm believer in two more steps for every person who makes recording of any steps. Always do these two things. I monitor my own voice as I'm talking so I can hear if I'm peeking. I can hear if I'm squeaking in my chair, I can hear if playing with a pen top is coming through the recording, if the garage door is opening and just got recorded in, er, into the recording, or I can hear if the dog jingling her collar has been recorded. I know when those things are happening, I can make a note of the timestamp and go cut that little piece out or make sure I stop playing with my pen or stop squeaking in my chair. The second thing I do is I always, always, always make a test recording and make sure to listen to it before proceeding with the recording to make sure everything is set properly. Well, when I was talking to Doug, I did monitor my voice, and I did check my recording, and guess what? It sounded awful. It sounded like I was coming from my internal microphone. So I went through every single step again. I checked the physical connection. I checked loopback. I checked audio hijack. I checked my input and system preferences. I checked and rechecked, and I could not find anything wrong. I could not find the root cause for how somehow it seemed to be grabbing my internal mic. I even asked Doug if he thought it sounded like I was coming through my good microphone. Now, that's not really a good test since Doug was listening through a compressed internet streaming service, and he's never heard my voice coming through either microphone on this kind of path. Now, Bart's heard me enough times he'd be able to tell the difference, and he's often let me know if I've got it set wrong. But a first-time interviewee has no frame of reference, and he said, I don't know, sounds good to me. So I spent about 10 minutes doing all of these checks and rechecks, and I decided I must just be judging it harshly because I was listening with my small earbuds instead of my over-the-ear headphones that I normally use at home. So there's one more fun part of this problem. It was 97 degrees Fahrenheit outside. That's 36C for you centigrade folks. So the air conditioning was blasting away at Lindsay's house. Even if I could have convinced the rest of the household to roast on my behalf, I couldn't have stood to have it turned off. So while recording, I could tell that the AC sound was coming through on the line because I was monitoring it. Now, I use an audio unit dynamics processor and audio hijack, which allows me to remove background noise when I'm not actually speaking. There's nothing to be done to get rid of the air conditioning while I'm actually talking. But at least when Doug was talking, it would sound good. I rode that dynamics processor constantly, but I was still sad that the AC would be awful when I was talking. Well, after recording, I listened, and again, I was convinced that my mic had come through my internal microphone, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out how that could be. I had checked the inputs over and over and over again, and I was positive that I had set it to the Zoom H4n Pro because it said I did. Now, I do want to tell you that I took the audio from my recording and I ran it through um, uh, uh, Audacity and I did remove the noise and it's not as bad as it was when I first recorded it. So be glad it's only as awful as it actually is. So here I am that night just really sad and I, mostly sad because I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I knew the recording was going to come out like this, but I couldn't figure out Why? Now, I slept on it, and in the morning this morning, I figured out what I did wrong. I forgot one hardware setting. Remember I said that I plugged the SM58 microphone into the XLR input one? Well, I never told the Zoom which input to listen to. By default, the Zoom chooses its own internal mics, not the one or more mics you have plugged into its XLR inputs. There's a little button I forgot to push to flip it over to XLR Input 1. Well, that explains why all of the software settings were happily reporting that I was using the Zoom as the input. Because I was. I just hadn't told the Zoom the right microphone to use. Now, I bet a lot of you guys are out there wondering, why don't you just go back to using the ATR2100 USB mic that you used to use? That was simple. You plugged it in and you picked it. That's all you had to do. Well, I have two reasons for that, or a few reasons, and perhaps they wouldn't be enough to make you go through this much trouble, but they're enough for me. I am always trying to find ways to up my game in podcasting, especially getting my audio as good as possible. Of course, it backfired for me on this particular recording, but I learned a lot in figuring this out, and I am going to document this so I have a little checklist in case it happens again. And you know what else? Learning tech is what the podcasts are all about at the PodFeed podcast, right? I think learning new things, uh, that new, learning new things part of it, probably outweighs every other motivation when I'm creating the shows. So when you listen to this episode, just sit there thinking, boy, I bet she's mad at how bad this sounds. But the good news is, Doug sounds fantastic. Back at CES in January of this year, Night Eyes gave me a product I never talked about on the NoSilicast. It wasn't because there was anything wrong with it, it was I just didn't have a need for it until now. You may recall hearing me talk about Night Eyes a lot of times before. They make the amazing gear ties. These little rubber-coated metal twist ties are simply the best cable management method I've ever found. I give them away as as uh presents to people because they're so fantastic. I also told you that I wear the Night Eyes tag to light myself up when I walk Tesla at night, and I use the Night Eyes Radiant 300 rechargeable lantern when I'm hunting under my desk trying to figure out which cable is which. But at CES, they gave me two supposedly watertight containers to test out. Now, here's the problem. We don't have much water around here other than the ocean. We don't have lakes or rivers, and it's pretty much stopped raining about 10 years ago in California. On one of my many vacations this year, we went back to Michigan to visit my relatives, and one of my goals was to go down a river in a kayak with my cousin Dory. We made that dream come true. Dory and her husband Mike took us down the Thornapple River, and it was just as spectacular as I'd hoped. The Thornapple River flows at a nice little pace and we simply floated for about four and a half hours. I think I might have burned an entire calorie that day. Now, if you haven't been in a kayak, you may not realize that you sort of like sit in the water when you're in them. Everything in the kayak gets wet, even on a calm river like the Thornapple. I figured this was a great chance to test out the runoff waterproof containers that Night Eyes had sent me or given me at CES. The first one is technically a waterproof toiletry bag, think like shaving kit. And the second one is called the waterproof wallet. Both of these containers have a patented closing a patented, how do you say that right? Patented closing technology that Night Eyes calls TrueZip. TrueZip is a toothless zipper made of molded rubber. Now that sounds boring, and you're probably thinking that you've seen that on a Ziploc bag for your sandwiches, but there's a wee bit more to it than that. This zipper is super strong and thick, and the magic appears to be in what they call the over-molded garage. Now, I don't know about that wording, because mold the garage doesn't sound like a good thing, but this is actually a locking end stop, the end stop where you can really feel the zipper pull get anchored to fully seal this container. For this adventure, I figured I'd pack everything I cared about in the toiletry bag because it could hold my phone and my wallet. But having fallen for waterproof before, I ran a test before we left on the trip. I opened the bag and I put a tissue inside, figuring a tissue would tell me very quickly whether it got wet. I zipped it shut all the way to the end stop. By the way, you do have to really pull hard to get it to go into that end stop so there's no doubt when you've done it right and when you haven't yet pulled it fully closed. Well, I put the bag in a sink full of water, and it floated because it had a lot of air trapped in it. That was a good sign, and that's a benefit right there. I shoved it underwater, I wrenched it around, I made sure the zipper was bent at all kinds of angles and fully submerged. When I pulled it out and opened the zipper, the tissue was dry as a bone. On the kayak, the run-off waterproof bag worked like a champ. With strong built in attachment points, I was able to use a carabiner to hook the bag to the kayak. And while it flopped around with me paddling and got drenched, everything in the bag was completely dry when we got back. Now, while my tests were clearly scientific, Night Eyes also says that their runoff cases are waterproof to IP67 standards, which is one meter deep for half an hour. He also explained that waterproof also means dust and sandproof. So I guess I should be able to take it to the beach down to the ocean here. Now the runoff toiletry bag is not cheap, it's $40 and it's pretty big for the job. And the wallet is actually really small at $25. I think the sweet spot might be the runoff waterproof pocket for $30, which is $30, i am sorry, is six and a half by five point two inches. Now that price might sound high, but if you think about the valuables you can protect from the elements, knowing they're they would be secure and a runoff waterproof case from Night Eyes could just be worth it. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. What do I? What is? What... How come I always have to. It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Well, Gordon sent in a terrific dumb question for us, and he sent it in a really long time ago, and I apologize for taking so long to answer him, but I wanted to do a good job of it, and I am finally ready to answer his question. Let's hear Gordon ask his great dumb question. Hi, Allison. I have a question. You might say, I have a dumb question. I wanted to know if password securing your documents, well, is secure. In my case, I have a spreadsheet that I created in numbers that contains sensitive financial information. I use the feature built into numbers to set a password. By the way, if you're looking for this, it's located under the file menu. I have this file stored in iCloud and want to know how safe this document is in case someday a nefarious party somehow gains access to my document stored in the cloud. So. Is my document safe by being password protected, or is that something easy for a hacker to bypass? I await your expert opinion. Thanks, Allison. Well, thank you for the great question, Gordon. This is a perfect example of a dumb question because I had a clue of how to start figuring it out, but it took me down some fun rabbit holes to get you what I think is a complete answer. I'd like to break the problem down into a few separate areas. Since you're no Silicast castaway, and most likely have heard Bart saying stay pat so you stay secure a few hundred times, I'm sure you've learned that you need to have a good password. A good password would include upper and lowercase letters, numbers, and a few special characters thrown in for good measure. It should be long, say at least 16 characters long. Personally, I always go to the awesome tool that Bart built for us over at xkpasswd.net to generate my passwords. Using its tool, you can get long passwords, you get them complex, and they're memorable and easy to type. Then, of course, I immediately put that awesome password into my password manager. By the way, if you get value out of using xkpasswd, Bart has a big yellow donate button on that page. You can go ahead and press it. All right, now that we have a strong password, which is basically the beginning step, right? You got to start there. We have to look at how the file is encrypted to know if it's secure. Security experts agree that if you don't know how something is encrypted, you don't really know how secure your data actually is. For example, my favorite messaging tool, Telegram, uses a proprietary encryption algorithm called MTProto. This was developed based on 256-bit AES encryption with Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange. That's all good stuff, but their server-side code is closed-source. Since security experts can actually see how it's being done, they can't really give it a seal of approval. Another secure messaging service called Signal uses AES 256-bit encryption with Diffie Hellman as well, but they publish both the client and server code under an open source license. Signal is considered the gold standard of secure messaging as a result. So now in our example, we would like to know how Apple encrypts our files if we use their handy-dandy password protection field inside our iWork documents. In the Apple support article on the topic, they don't say what encryption they use, but they do say, quote, there's no way to recover your password if you forget it. Be sure to choose a password you won't forget or write it down in a safe place, unquote. Now, that suggests that they don't have the keys to unlock it, which is a good thing, but it still is not as much detail as we want. I did some hunting on our collective behalf, and I found one interesting little tidbit about encryption in iWork. Back in 2017, a vulnerability was discovered by Philip Eckel of ThoughtWorks in the way iWork was exporting password-protected PDFs. That's explained in detail in CVE 2017-2391, but explained simply in a security report over at Apple.com. They said, quote, iWork used weak 40-bit RC4 encryption for password-protected PDF exports. This issue was addressed by changing iWork export to use AES-128, unquote. I pointed this article because in all of my searching, I was unable to find any reference on any official Apple page that explained what encryption algorithm they were using to password protect iWork documents. However, I can't imagine that they would have fixed this vulnerability in PDF export of iWork documents and not thought, hey, should we check what encryption we're using when people password protect their files? I think it's a good bet that they use at least AES 128 bit. Now I did find a 2012 article from CNET about a brute force attack on iWork password protected files, and in this article from seven years ago, it does say that Apple uses 128 bit AES encryption. But since it's not an official Apple document, I didn't want to rely on it. Now, anyway, we're talking about 128 bit encryption is what they use on the they had changed iWork PDF export to, and that got me to thinking. Well, if they're only using AES-128 when all the cool kids are using AES-256, is 128-bit good enough? I found an awesome blog post by AgileBits, makers of 1Password, back from uh, May of 2013, written by Jeffrey Goldberg, and in that he addresses this topic of AES-128 versus 256. The title of the article is, Guess Why We're Moving to 256-Bit AES Keys? I'd like to read a couple of quotes from the article. He said, 1Password is moving to AES-256-bit AES keys instead of 128-bit keys. Why do you think we're making this move? If your answer is because AES-256 is stronger than AES-128, you would be wrong. There is a technical sense in which AES-256 is enormously stronger than AES-128, but in every sense that actually matters for security, there is no difference. While most articles about encryption would make your head spin with or without propeller beaning, Jeffrey's article is very human-readable. It's really fun. He explains what AES, Advanced Encryption Standard, is and how the keys work, all in plain English. He explains how 256-bit encryption is mathematically more secure. But then he switches gears under a section entitled, quote, Searching for keys is harder than digging up bones, unquote. He uses the analogy of his dog Molly hiding bones from his dog Patty and how Patty's method for searching for the bones would be equivalent to a brute force attack. He explains that if Molly uses 128-bit methods, there will be 2 to the power of 128 potential hiding places for the bones. Patty knows all of the hiding places, so on average she will have to search half of them before finding the bone. Now it turns out that half of 2 to the 128th is not 2 to the 64th. It's 2 to the 127th. So half a 2 to the 128th is to the, 2 to the 127th. And that's a lot of hiding places. Now going to 256-bit methods, of course, Patty would have to search on average 2 to the 255th hiding places, with it, which is a whole stinking lot harder. But if you think about it, 2 to the 127th is already an insurmountable number of places to search. And not just for a dog. Jeffrey does the math on how long it would take to brute force two to the 127th hiding places. With today's supercomputers, he says it's 10 quadrillion years. Now, if that's a number that's a wee bit difficult to get your brain around, Jeffrey even puts that in perspective for us. He explains that the universe is about 15 billion years old. So checking two to the 127th hiding places would take more than 600 thousand times the age of the universe with a supercomputer. Now, I think this says categorically that even if Apple is only using AES-128, they're probably using AES-256 by now, that's still going to be secure enough even for your very super secret financial documents. The fact that Apple says they can't help you unlock the documents if you lose your password is also encouraging. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you can take control of this and leave no questions left unanswered about the security of your documents. I'm sure you've all heard of the uh, the tool Disk Utility, which lives inside Applications Utilities. One of its hidden treasures is the ability to create disk images, and more specifically, you can create encrypted disk images. If you create your own disk image, you can encrypt it with the level you want and then store the image in iCloud or any other service. Open Disk Utility, and in the File menu, choose New Image, Blank Image. In the bottom right of the window that pops up, you can name the disk image, set its size and how it's formatted, but most importantly, you can choose between No Encryption, AES 128, or 256-bit encryption. Now, before reading the Agile Bits blog post by Jeffrey, I would definitely have chosen 256, but after what I learned about Molly and Patty searching for bones, I wouldn't be worried about choosing 128-bit encryption. Once you've named and created your encrypted disk image, you can put it anywhere you want, including into cloud storage. Now, when you want to open up your super secret document, you simply double-click on that disk image, enter the passwords, and the disk will mount on your desktop. Work away with all of your documents, save, and then eject the mounted disk to keep your data safe from local prying eyes as well as online hackers. With Disk utilities encrypted disk images, you can have all of your documents secured with a single password. And you know for sure that it's encrypted and you know how it's encrypted. So the bottom line is, I guess I could have done the research and answered Gordon's question of how safe his document was by saying, pretty dang safe. But you know what? What kind of fun would that have been? At the end of every Chit Chat Across the Pond, I ask the audience whether they've noticed that the shows don't have any ads in them. But I haven't pointed that out to you lately. You know what? There's no ads because the PodFeed podcasts are supported by you, the listeners. If you find value in the content you get here, please consider one of the following options to just give back a little. You can become a patron by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon and donating a little bit each week to help the show. You can go to podfeet.com slash PayPal and give a one-time donation if you'd rather do that. If you don't have any extra cash lying around, and I understand that, consider using the Amazon affiliate links when you shop that are included whenever I talk about a product on the show. Anything you buy in that session after you click one of those links will be going towards the Nosilicast and PodFeed Podcast coffers. If you have some spare time and you'd like to give a review over on iTunes for the Nosilicast, chitchat Chit Chat Across the Pond, Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, or Programming by Stealth, or all of them, that helps more people learn about the shows, and more Nosilicast is always more fun. Thank you for all your help in supporting the shows. As we prepare for moving to macOS Catalina, we all need to look through our applications to make sure that no mission-critical app is 32-bit, since Catalina will require only 64-bit apps. In our Slack, someone suggested that Apple should have announced that more clearly, but I think giving us a a warning every single time we open a 32-bit app for a full year is warning enough. If you want to see what apps you're running are 32-bit, your Mac will tell you that right out of the box. The quickest way to get it is to hold down the Option key and click on the Apple logo in the upper left. Instead of About This Mac, the Option key will reveal System Information. In the left sidebar of System Information, you'll see Hardware, Network, and then Software, all with little chevrons that pop down for more information. Under Software, still in that left sidebar, select Applications. You'll probably want to resize your window a bit and drag the bottom half panel down so you can see the list of apps more clearly. The far right column is entitled 64-bit Intel. If you click on it, it will sort by 64-bit and then click it again until it shows no at the top. Now you'll see each application, the version, when it was last modified, and whether it was from an identified developer, an unknown developer, or from Apple. If you select an application that says identified developer in the list, down in the second half of the window, it'll tell you who signed that application. You also get some detail on the certificate authority, which isn't really that helpful for what we're trying to do, and it tells you the location of the file in the finder. That's pretty good info, but there's a free app called Go64 from St. Clair Software that gives you the same information, but it gives you even more information. By default, Go64 scans your Mac for regular applications and presents it a bit nicer than system information. You get the application logo, which actually helps to identify apps as you scroll through the list. Also, instead of having to select an app and dig through the signature to find out who made it, the company name is one of the columns in the list. You also get the website for that company right in the main table. You can even see the last time you actually used an app. You know, if you haven't run it in a couple of years, maybe you don't care so much about whether it goes by the wayside with macOS Catalina. Now, let's say you have a bunch of applications you've been clinging to over the years, like Adobe CS6 and Quicken 2007. You can click the Upgrade Cost button in Go64 next to each one and enter what they're going to charge you to upgrade to the new version. At the top of the window, Go64 will keep a running total for you so you can freak out and see and decide never to upgrade to macOS Catalina. Now here's an interesting twist to using Go64 to check your apps. It found a little app called Final Cut Pro on my uh, Mac, and while it didn't put No under the 64-bit column, it did put a little yellow warning triangle there. When I clicked on it, at the bottom of the window, it said, app is 64-bit except for QT import helper tool. I would infer from this message that if we need to import from QuickTime into Final Cut, we might need to update from Apple. Now, while both system information and Go64 allow, uh, show you the path to the apps when you click on them, Go64 gives you a couple of buttons at the top that are helpful. There's also a reveal and finder button and a move to trash button, both of which are understandably useful. Now, I've been using app delete to fully remove all the applications and clean my Mac in setup, uh, that's available in setup, by the way, is another good alternative to cleaning up old apps. There's also a launch app button, which could be handy to look for a check for updates menu option. You can even click a button to go directly to the website for the app or do a generic web search about the app. Now, for normal apps, your best bet is to go right to the developer. But sometimes what Go64 finds is something curious that needs a little further investigation. For example, on my system, it found something called Inkserver.app, and it says it's from Apple Inc. Well, if I go to website, it just takes me to Apple.com where I can buy a new Apple Watch Series 5, but that's not important right now. But if I use the web search button, we can learn some more useful information. In Google, you can search a specific website for a specific term. The trick is to put in the search term and also put in site colon followed by the website you want to search. Go64 uses this trick with their web search button. So if I click on that button with Inkserver.app selected, my default browser opens to Google with a search executed to site colon httb colon slash slash apple.com space mac space Inkserver.app. In this case, the first hit on that search term is macOS Mojave release notes over at developer.apple.com. It explains that 32-bit services, including Ink Server, were included in Mojave for compatibility purposes, but will be deprecated in future versions of macOS. Now, what that tells me is I don't have to worry my pretty little head about it because it will be gone in macOS Catalina. And I saved myself another question. The last of my thirty-two bit apps is called QuickLookD32.app, and it was listed right beside Ink Server on that same search. That was worth the price of admission, which is free for Go sixty-four. If you want to make yourself really crazy, use the pull down in Go sixty-four to change the system scan from the default of looking for all applications to looking for all executables. You'll be shocked how many more Apple executables and even terminal documents you're going to find in there that are not 64-bit. I'm not sure what to do about those, so I'm just going to put my head in the sand and run away from those. St. Clair Software has made this app, Go64, freely available, but they do provide two options for you to show your gratitude. They'll offer you a donate button so you can throw them a few bucks, or you can take a look at their other awesome apps and consider buying one of those. They make default folder X, which a lot of people love. I use their Jettison menu bar app all the time to eject external drives before pulling my MacBook off the dock. Since I got value out of Go 64, I pulled the trigger and I, an, I bought an app called App Tamer, which I'd been noodling buying for a while. I think you'll find Go 64 a user-friendly method of helping you understand your exposure to the 32-bit problem and going forward to macOS Catalina. Okay, this is as good a time as any to tell you some fantastic news. Guess what? There's a beta available for you to test of Clarify that is 64-bit. Now, I've known that this was coming for ages, and I was only just now allowed to tell you guys. I am so excited about this because I have been unable to find any app that does what Clarify does. Now, sadly, Blue Mango Learning is not going to start selling it again, but if you own it, you will still be able to use it with macOS Catalina. Now, there'll be a link in the show notes, and uh, it's, it's basically clarify-it.com slash download. Now, you're going to be tempted to push a big blue button and download it and think that's the beta, but that's not the beta. That's the 32-bit version. Right underneath that, it says to click the 64-bit version. So you can join the beta right now. You can give them feedback on whether it's working. I've been testing it for months and months and months, and it's been killing me not to tell you. But we will have a 64-bit version when we go to Catalina, so I am super excited about that. When last we left our hero, Allison was lovingly packing her 2016 MacBook Pro into a box to ship back to Apple for repairs. At the very least, we knew that the battery needed service, as verified by Apple in a hardware diagnostics they ran over the uh, over the interwebs for me, and we knew that the keys were starting to double, which is a known problem with this keyboard. Neither of these two problems seem to be related to the Max Headroom video glitching processor slowdown nightmare that has been the last two months of my life. Speaking of the last two months, when I was on the Daily Tech News show the other day, Tom Merritt referred to my video streaming woes as being the crossover event of the summer. He explained he'd heard me talking about it on my show, then he heard me talking about it on SMR Podcast with Rob Dunwood, and then he heard it on his own show. Heck, he hadn't even heard Dave Hamilton talking about it on the Mac Geek app, so it really is the crossover event of the summer. So, I took my beloved MacBook Pro to FedEx on Sunday afternoon. They shipped it to Apple on Monday morning. By Tuesday morning, I got a notice from Apple saying that repairs had already begun. By Tuesday afternoon, I got another notice telling me it was on my way back to me already. Tuesday evening, I got a notice from FedEx telling me I was getting a package requiring a signature by 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday. At 10.20 a.m., my doorbell rang and my beloved was back. This was simply the fastest repair I have ever experienced in all of my years of dealing with Apple. I'm kind of wondering why I would ever go to the Apple store again. If I can prove to the people on the phone that something's broken, I'm just going to ship it to them. Anyway, I was very intrigued to read the repair list of what they found. They replaced the logic board, which includes 16 gigabytes of RAM and the 2 terabyte SSD and the Radium Pro graphics card. And they replaced the top case, which is the piece that includes the keyboard, and they replaced the battery. Now, a more efficient way to describe the repair might be to say that they didn't replace the screen and the bottom part that sits on the table with the little feet, and like, maybe the fans. Now, I want to point out that I bought this machine in November of 2016 when they were first announced, and I paid $239 for AppleCare. A logic board replacement from Apple is between five dollars and $800, and I'm guessing since mine had the 2 terabyte SSD, that would have been on the high end of the repair cost for me. The battery replacement would have been $200. Now, I'm not even going to count the $800 for the top case, uh, what that would have cost to replace, because the warranty repair is available for, to everyone up to four years on these devices. So if I'd had to pay for this repair myself, I would have been out $1,000 at least. I paid $239 for AppleCare. I'm a huge believer in AppleCare, and this isn't the first time I've had this kind of proof that it's a good deal, at least for me. Now, you'll notice I mentioned that they replaced the SSD, which means I get to do a clean install. Now, most people would look at this with dread, but I was really, truly hoping they would make me do this. It's kind of like how painting our house last year forced me to clean out our closet. It's a good thing. I dusted off my iThoughts mind map from the last time I did a new compave, and, and I got to work. I am so glad I document this every year. It helps in several ways. First and foremost, since I organize the apps to install into three categories, mission critical, high priority, and low priority, I don't have to make decisions on what to install first. Secondly, I have a parallel set of nodes for tasks, so those are also sorted into mission-critical, high-priority, and low-priority. These tasks remind me of all the little tweaks and configurations I need to do in order to be as productive as possible. I give future me tips on where settings are saved and you know obscure library files or specific instructions for those things I might have to change manually. Now, I was caught off guard this time when I had to face the fact that I'm really a serious geek now. It creeps up on you when you don't see it coming. My favorite example of this uh, was when I remembered that I wrote my own MP3 encoder and ID3 tag editor. That was a fun adventure, and I use it every single week to create the artwork and tags for Out Across the Pond and to convert my M4A file into an MP3. In my mind map, it tells me to go grab the script from a uh, backup. Then I remembered that it uses an open source library called FFmpeg to transcode the M4A audio file into an MP3. I can't install FFmpeg from the command line in Terminal until I install homebrew Homebrew from the command line, right? I'm a nerd and I'm so proud of myself for it and so happy that Bart has been my muse over all these years to get me here. I added one app to my mission critical list, and that's Copy and Paste, which I told you about last week, my new clipboard manager. I'll give you an example of why it's so critical to me now. I use MarsEdit for my blogging tool, and I've created a bunch of slick automations in it, specifically the ones that let me format images in the post, like the ones with the pretty little captions. I could have bothered the developer, Daniel Jalka, to ask where the preferences are, and that would have been great fun because I like torturing him, but I found an easier way to transfer all of the crazy code that makes it possible. On my 2013 MacBook Pro, I simply copied each field one after another with Command-C and Tab over and over again. Since I coughed up the grand total of $5 for iCloud syncing of copy and paste, on the 2016 MacBook Pro, I was able to open up the same fields in Mars Edit and use copy and paste to, peach, to paste each item in. Boom, boom, boom. It was sweet. By the way, I also found out that in a lot of cases, Apple's built-in continuity helped me copy from one Mac and simply paste into the other Mac. Another surprise in going through this so far is that other than pulling library configuration files... I've been working for almost, uh, what is it, four or five days without actually moving any data from my backup drive. That's kind of interesting, right? About a year ago, I decided to finally turn on iCloud syncing of my desktop and documents, so that's turned out to be super useful. I've got most of the important stuff for my podcast and my documents folder, so it's been pretty seamless. I installed Dropbox, which I use to move some kinds of config files between uh, between computers and also as my synced iThoughts files. I use Google Drive for sharing files with Steve, like all of our vacation documentation, so that's been synced right over. And of course, I use iCloud Photo Library for my photos, which means that, yet again, I'm now downloading 77,000 photos from iCloud. Thank goodness I have good bandwidth. Now, I'm actually wondering, what do I have on that backup drive anyway, since I've been working away without needing any data from it? Now, there's a few of you out there who are yelling at your devices right now, saying, after 1,200 words, you have still not mentioned your video streaming problems. Well, as of last week, I had determined to a 67.3% certainty that the root cause was my 5K LG display. I base this on the fact that I was able to conjure up max headroom on both the 2016 MacBook Pro and the 2013 MacBook Pro while I had the LG 5K up, but not with the elderly Apple Cinema display. But hold that thought. After I'd installed all of my mission-critical apps back on the newly repaired 2016 MacBook Pro, and I'd done all of the fiddling with settings to make them do my bidding, it was time to do some tests. I noodled all of the changes I could make to the system to start testing all these different scenarios, but then I thought, what if I just put the system exactly the way it used to work before everything went wonky? I plugged all of my peripherals into the CalDigit TS3 Plus Thunderbolt 3 dock first. I got the Logitech webcam, the Shure microphone interface, and my headphones. I connected the 5K display to the dock using a Thunderbolt 3 cable the same one I'd been using originally. Then I connected the 2016 MacBook Pro to the dock, again using a Thunderbolt 3 cable. This configuration means video, audio, data, and power are all being sent back and forth using a single Thunderbolt 3 port on my Mac. I launched all of my video and audio recording software using the script I created for this purpose. That's Hindenburg for recording the podcast, Audio Hijack to capture and sweet my voice, Loopback to route my voice, and Hindenburg into virtual audio sources for the live stream. I got webcam settings to manage my webcam, Chrome to open to a Memo call URL to send my video and audio to Steve, and finally NDI Scan Converter to capture my Hindenburg window to send to Steve's Memo live session. And that's everything. This is the exact configuration that began going belly up a month or month and a half ago where my video would start to get out of sync with my voice and eventually become very jerky. This is when watching my processor using Intel Power Gadget would show me that it had dropped from 2.7 gigahertz down to as low as 1 gigahertz. It also showed that the thermal sensor on the CPU was reporting only 60 degrees C, which is actually pretty low. Well, Steve and I ran our test and wait for it, nothing went wrong. No voice and video sync issues, no max headroom-like jerkiness to my video, no dropping of the processor frequency at all. Everything was perfectly fine. Intel Power Gadget confirmed the findings, showing my CPU was happily idling along at 3.8 gigahertz, even though the CPU die sensor was now reporting 83 degrees C. Remember the repair report that said this? Oh, I didn't. I, actually, I buried the lead here. One of the things the repair report said was that the sensors Had failed their test. Maybe when it was reporting 60C, it was just making that number up and it had no idea how hot things in there actually were. Is it possible that the Mac disintegrating in so many ways was the root cause of all the problems? Could it explain why we had so much trouble finding a controlled experiment that had consistent results? I didn't even mention the battery was swollen in there, according to the report. Now, two questions remain outstanding and they're kind of related. When I was convinced it was the 5K monitor, I came to that conclusion because swapping out the entire Mac for the older one gave me the same Max Headroom results. Now, it's a stretch to say I can completely explain this result, but with the help of talking to a lot of people, I do have a theory. The 2013 MacBook Pro doesn't have Thunderbolt 3, it's only got Thunderbolt 2. The Apple Cinema display I was using to replace the 5K display was pre-Thunderbolt, so it only has DisplayPort. In addition, the Apple Cinema display is lower resolution, so it was sending required. Uh, it, the, it was sending far less data transfer than it had to to the 5K display. That means the setup without the 5K display were less taxing on both computers. Now, as I said, the older Mac does speak Thunderbolt, just Thunderbolt 2 instead of Thunderbolt 3. When I connected that older Mac through the dock to the 5K display it's possible that driving the display and all the other peripherals was just too much for that computer to accept, including all of the data from all of the other peripherals. I'd love to have a more specific answer to the older Mac having problems, but I'm now up to 83.4% certain that the root cause of my video streaming woes was that my 2016 MacBook Pro was disintegrating. You're hearing me this record this right now, people are watching live. I am using the 2016 MacBook Pro. And let's see, my processor is sitting at 2.33 gigahertz right now. We got a temperature of balmy 71C. So it's all working right now. I got to tell you, I truly, dearly hope that there will not be a follow-up to this story. Well, with that, I'm going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions like Gordon did. Wasn't it fun having a dumb question from Gordon? You too can send in your dumb questions. You can do that by sending them to me at allison at podfeet.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfi. Now remember, everything good starts with podfi.com. Podfi.com slash Patreon. Podfi.com slash Facebook for our Facebook group. Podfi.com slash Slack for our Slack community. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfi.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways.